What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you once again for choosing to download our content and fill your ears with it. I am always humbled when people do that. Please share around. If you like it so much, uh, invite others. That would be great. This is Naga Notes. I'm Jake Wiskirchen, and we are proudly the only podcast that we know of designed to educate and enrich your noggin on matters of mental health, mental wellness, psychology, spirituality, and all sorts of other things that help people make Earth better, recorded from Reno, Nevada. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure there's lots of podcasts out there. I always have to add the location just because we think we're the only one doing it here. Um, Today, I am joined by Chris Gehring, who is a physical therapist up in Washington State. And in the Pacific Northwest, he works on bodies, people who have been injured or otherwise uh, are looking to recover from all sorts of things like surgeries or um, missteps or uh, just, you know, lifelong, you know, beating of the body. So he helps them fit, recover physically, but he also incorporates a mental component to his work. And that's what we're talking about today is the power of the mind in the body's own healing. And also he cites some really cool studies and statistics that back this kind of thing up. So I think you're going to enjoy the conversation. If you haven't yet taken your free and anonymous mental health screening, please do so at walkthetalkamerica.org or wtta.org slash love. Uh, you can also go to my website. My company is called Zephyr Wellness. Zephyrwellness.org has a link to the same screenings. Free and anonymous. We love free and uh, you know people like to be anonymous sometimes. So if you take a free and anonymous mental health screening powered by Mental Health America, you can check in on your mental stability and uh, make adjustments as you see fit. If you get a number you don't like, maybe uh, maybe go seek some psychotherapy or just go get some other you know books and materials to help improve your your viewpoint. So uh, check those things out. Also check out Zephyr Wellness YouTube channel. I uh, have some videos on there about emotional functioning and all sorts of things that we discuss on this podcast. And um, I think that's it. I think that's all we got to say. I really thank you again for listening and I appreciate your your following. If you haven't uh, looked at Naga Notes Africa or Naga Notes Cambodia, you get a real international flavor for what's going on elsewhere in the world also part of the Noggin Notes family. With that all being said, I hope you enjoy this interview with Chris. Well, listening audience, here we are talking with Chris Gearing on the Noggin Notes podcast. Hello, Chris. Good afternoon, Jake. It is a good afternoon. You're, uh, you're up in Washington State uh, in the United States. It's the Pacific Northwest as we know it. What, what city are you in? I'm just outside of Seattle, um, and it's it's three thirty nine in the afternoon on a February, and it's sunny out. Um, and so I'm I'm soaking that one up and getting as much vitamin D today as I possibly can. So is uh, sunny unique for Seattle because we always hear about how it's like you know um, you know <laughs> cloudy and rainy and nobody should ever go there. And <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it, it gets it gets a bad reputation, but uh, and, and anybody that's that's been here or is from here certainly knows about the um, the SAD disorder, right? S A D, mm-hmm. the seasonal affective disorder. Um, a uh, very, very real uh, effect on on the, you know, your your chemicals, your serotonin, your dopamine levels, and uh, it makes people feel depressed and uh, uh, sad, right? And and that's a very real thing. The lack of daylight, the lack of sunshine, the lack of brightness. Um, we as humans respond well to that, and so uh, life just kind of stops a little bit when it's sunny on a February afternoon up here. <laughs> it's sunny here, and unfortunately, we're in the middle of a about. Uh, I think it's been, we're pushing six consecutive weeks of no precipitation whatsoever. We just ever had the first oh ever uh, <laughs> dry January <laughs> that Reno has ever seen in its recorded history, which dates wow. to like 1883 or something. So, yeah, the, wow. the the sky isn't supposed to do dry January. And, you know, we live in the high <laughs> desert, but we, we're dependent upon the mountains and snowpack yeah. for our, our water in the in the summertime. So oh, it's, it's pretty, it, you know, as much as we enjoy highs in the fifties and sunshine and you know, no wind. It's pretty depressing knowing that we're staring down the barrel of a, of a drought yet again. And so that's, that's, it's a mixed bag. You know, it's like, I want to, I'm enjoying the nice weather, but I know that there's like, (laughs) this is like, it doesn't bode well. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a catch 22. Um, man. So speaking of, uh, you know, 
mental wellness uh, having to do with external things <laughs> uh, let's, <laughs> yeah, let's shift gears and make a hard left into the uh into the topic of the day which you're you're yeah. a physical therapist by trade and you recently opened your own practice well i guess not that recent a year or so ago a year and a half ago um i want to talk about that but really the topic for today's show is how do people who suffer injuries and then specifically sports injuries because that's a that's an interesting thing how do they deal with that relative to their psychological well-being. So uh, we'll go whatever direction you want to go with this, but talk, talk a little bit first about the transition you made from working for corporate and, you know, corporate healthcare and striking off and forming your own business. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's, it's, um, it, it's, it's been life changing. You know, I, I grew up in Arizona. I did my, got my doctorate degree in Arizona, um, physical therapy, uh, double majored in, in psychology and kinesiology at uh, Arizona State. And so this, this is something that, that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, took my first job at a, um, a, a large corporate presence here in Seattle, uh, worked for about a year and a half, and then kind of out of nowhere, um, they, they asked me to take over my own clinic uh, as part of an expansion project up in Washington. Uh, and this is a company that has uh, hundreds and hundreds of clinics across the United States. Um, I didn't really feel ready, but I also felt that it would be uh, it'd be foolish not to take that opportunity and just kind of learn and grow from there. So um, spent about a year and a half as a clinical director, uh, my own clinic uh, just up, you know, up until and, and a little bit through the pandemic and uh, great experience um, kind of throwing myself into the fire a little bit uh, um, grew quite a bit professionally, but it, it certainly wasn't without its challenges um, um, outside the clinic. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's interesting because uh you know, anybody that's been to physical therapy before, um, you, you kind of rely on these individuals to get you out of pain. That's why you're there, right? You're, you're, yeah. you're, you're in pain, you're injured. You go to physical therapy sometimes it's because the doctor says, well, that's what you got to do before I do anything else. Uh, and sometimes it's because you truly believe in the system and, and you want to give it a shot. But it's interesting how, how many physical therapists are in pain or under a burden or psychological stress, uh, and taking care of you at the same time, but you have no idea about it. Um, right. And it was one of those things that they kept accumulating and uh, 12 hour days uh, through the pandemic had to furlough my entire staff. And I was the front office person. I was the physical therapist. I was the IT guy. I had to figure it out. You know, I, I was on the call and supervising uh, more patients than, <laughs> than I care to admit at the same time. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, so uh, I, I said something has to change here because not only is my body taking a toll, my my stress is taking a toll, and that's that's starting to interfere with my personal life, and I'm not okay with that. Um, so I had an opportunity to uh, collaborate with a local practice here to deliver outpatient physical therapy to people's homes, and it's kind of a unique model. Which um, there was certainly some growing pains with that as well. Um, but but here I am, and I, I've went I've gone from seeing 16 patients a day to five. And, wow. Um, <laughs> and so it's, it's a great, uh, w without a, um, you know, and I'm still making the same, uh, if not a little bit more financially. So there, there's a good, uh, good niche if, if you can do it. That's crazy. I, I would love to pick your brain off line about how that ended up working out with the, the reimbursements and the compensation and stuff, but we'd be happy doing to. It here. We would, we would bore the audience to tears. <laughs> um, but, but yeah. just know that that is, that is a thing. If you go into business for yourself in this, in this healthcare field, it's incredibly, um, I, tumultuous is not quite the right word, but to, to quote a, a friend and mentor of mine, he says, there, there's no revenue stream that's immune from risk. So <laughs> he happens to run a nonprofit agency that's all grant funded. I happen to run a for-profit agency where we bill insurance, and both of us are always wondering how we're going to make it next yeah. right and set our budgets and that kind of thing so um yeah. kudos to you for doing that that's really cool uh, it comes you. with it does come with a great deal of risk personally and professionally if you strike off and you, you leave the safety net of working for somebody else so good job and i'm proud of you to yeah, i appreciate that. that so yeah so with these people that you see now you're working in home uh is there a presumption that they cannot make it to the clinic <laughs> there is amongst the medical community. I, I almost lost a patient postoperatively because when they heard that I was going to them, they said, no, 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 that's not the PT that you want. Um, you need to go into the clinic. And um, it's, a, it's a unique, like I said, it's a unique niche. Um, and, and these I'm working with 17 uh, year old cross countries. I'm working with uh, uh, I've got a um, I've got a couple collegiate athletes. I've got 
30, 40, 50, 60, 70 year olds. I'm still, it's the same people that would come into the clinic. I just go to you. And um, it's, it's been amazing how much I can just your, your knowledge of the psychological aspect of recovery combined with the functional application of biomechanics, you just don't need the bells and whistles and the, um, you know, hundred thousand dollar pieces of equipment to rehab people. And that, that uh, was, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask like, would you, would you bring a treadmill with you in your car? Like, <laughs> I wish sometimes I wish, you, but no, I have a people, backpack. Hey, yeah. I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to bolt this into your wall for a moment. Uh, <laughs> you're going to hang now, and stretch. If you, if you do a good job of using door anchors, um, resistance tubing and, um, physics, uh, you can accomplish most anything. And um, that's cool. I've, I've gotten a, a kid. Uh, he's he's on his way to D1 lacrosse right now. And I didn't use more than what I had in the backpack to get him back. Um, that's so great. Um, and, and you get creative with with homes and environments. So um, and, but but a huge part of that, too, truly is uh, is tapping into the um, as, as you practice longer and longer, you know, you come out of school with all this anatomical and biomechanical knowledge and all these latest modalities and tools and things and to some extent that that limits your your creativity um mm-hmm. it limits your you, you go through eight seven to eight years of school to do this um and 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 you don't wind up using it on on people and you don't wind up using the biomechanics the physics uh and and there's there's a big push uh in the medical industry to find the next greatest fix mm-hmm. and youtube right so um the, the long answer to your question is um, if you understand the mind and you understand how to tap into the person's mind, you can achieve the buy-in you need to get them better without the bells and whistles. Okay. And that's, give that's us tough. an example. Yeah. Give, give us an example then. Like how this is what fascinates, I think probably me and certainly our listening audience. Um, I, no, invert that. Probably our listening audience. Certainly me. <laughs> I don't know who's yeah. listening, what they're fascinated by. But how do you tap into somebody's mind when you're working on their body and yeah. how do those two connect? That's a fantastic question, and it, it was actually one of the um, one of the interview questions I had going through um, uh, interviewing for my doctorate program was uh, why why do you want to be a physical therapist and not an orthopedic surgeon or a, right. a medical doctor? Um, and certainly, I could have made more money. Absolutely, um, it's more, more debt too. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have plenty of that. <laughs> so, and, and it's certainly quote unquote more glamorous. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's certainly a, a respect level with medical doctors that. Um, PTs don't always, uh, always achieve. But, uh, my answer to that question was the, the human aspect of it. Um, I've had an, I, I grew up playing uh, baseball. I, I was fortunate enough to play a couple of measly years of college ball before injuries got the best of me. Um, and you know, I, I was in and out of orthopedic offices as, as early as 14 years old. And, uh, it, it's, it's, it, it to some extent dehumanizes and it's not it's not a medical doctor's it's not even the profession's fault necessarily there's a greater societal um and structural issue with with our healthcare system that that is in, in play here and that's beyond the scope of today but uh you, you go into a, a consult with an orth- orthopedic surgeon or a medical doctor and it's 10 minutes it's 15 minutes if you're lucky um any follow up visit is is quick if if you even get the md you might get his uh pa mm-hmm. um uh, they'll, they'll do a couple quick scans, tell you what they see in the scan and tell you four different options you can take from there. Um, and, and none of them are, are great, <laughs> right. Or, or they, mm-hmm. they all are, they all sound great. So, uh, my, my answer was, I get to spend time with people and how do you tap into their mind? Well, y- you may not do it on the first day. You may not do it on the second day. I, it may take me five visits before I actually be able to get into that. But I'm certainly going to identify things on day one. And a lot of it is um, uh, you learn a lot more by listening than you do speaking, right? So I just open up the conversation with a prompt. And it's very simple. I just say, tell me why you need me. And you learn a lot. I, d- I don't care about your diagnosis. I don't care about uh, what the script says. But you might, and that tells me a lot of information. Well, Doc said I have a degenerative disc, and that's why my back hurts. Doc said I have um, mm-hmm. uh, scoliosis, and that's why my back hurts. The MRI said I have a rotator cuff tear, and that's why my shoulder hurts. And so that's an opportunity for me, maybe not on day one, but maybe on day four, day five, day six, to say, hey, well, 
you know, what's really interesting about that is that you're 35 years old and we put thousands of people through an MRI that had no pain whatsoever. And for your age group, between the 30 and 40 year old age group, about 30 to 40% of us have degenerative discs, but they have no pain. So I'm not saying you're making this up, but I just want to put this, I just want to put this root out there. I just want to put this seat out there and, and we can talk about that later. Um, half of the people by age 50, 60 have rotator cuff tears, but they have no pain at all. So is that the generator of your pain? Is surgery going to take that pain away? Maybe, maybe not. Um, and I've got a couple of stu- studies to the average person. Studies are boring, but to, to me, I'm, a, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm an anatomy nerd, and you're, you're, yeah. you're smiling right now because you, you know it too. Um, uh, studies love, are fascinating to studies. us. But, uh, I'll, I'll cite a couple later on, but uh, to answer your question, I get to spend time with people. And the more time you spend with them, you start to understand where their mind is at um, and how that affects their behaviors. And it's the behaviors that drive their pain. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, th- I think something that gets wildly overlooked these days, although it seems to be gaining traction maybe in popular culture, but I don't think it's gaining traction among our professional communities, the mind-body connection. We tend to you know, write off things that we can't quantify as woo-woo or you mm-hmm. know, uh, if we don't understand some per- per- spiritual perspective, we, we discount it. And, and, and the simple fact is like I say this all the time in all the – the places my profession has existed for 100 120 years in its current form and humanity in its current form has really existed for like 40,000 years so somehow we got here without me and and I want to I want to try to find out what what commonalities there are that people use before I came along and I got to presume that you guys do the same thing in your field where it's like you don't need me. What you need is, is different perspective and motivation and so forth. But, you know, I want to do a little exercise here for the listening audience. If you're, if you're listening to this and, um, you don't have to close your eyes if you're driving, please don't do that. But if you're, if you're just somewhere where you can just close your eyes for a second and, and just imagine holding a lemon and you cut into that lemon and you take a, a, a big juicy bite of the lemon, what is your mouth doing right now? And usually people are like, well, it's puckering or it's, it's watering or something. It's like, yeah, but you don't have a lemon. So how powerful is the mind that we can create a physiological response without even having an object in front of us? Um, and that's the type of thing we're talking about. It's like, well, it's rude to say that somebody's pain is all in their head. Yeah, it is rude to say somebody's pain is all in their head. I don't know. I'm not that person. Their, their pain could be you know, uh, physiologically created or manifested. But what we want to acknowledge is the power of the mind to do something about it. And it sounds like that's where you go with with your folks is not only a, a mental commitment to the treatment itself, and there's there's that right. You know, you can do your exercise, you can do your stretches, or you're just going to like pay at lip service and come back every Tuesday and Thursday at nine a.m. and you know do it for a half hour, but then not on the other days. That's that's a mental thing too. Um, and then also helping people understand how powerful it is where they direct their attention as it relates to bodily pain or physiological response so do you have any um i guess do you have any tips or techniques or insights as far as that's concerned with people who may be uh dealing with something that may not even be pain but what what do you what do you say as a generic overlay i know it's really yeah. hard to be generic in, in these settings you want to be precise because it's all patient-centered but what, yeah, do, you, what do you have to say with that re- you know to that regard yeah, absolutely. that's a great question. And, and so and I want to preface a lot of this by saying, you know, I'm not talking about you're, you're on the soccer pitch and you go plant cut, you hear a pop in your knee and you go down in pain. And that's an <laughs> it's ACL all in your tear. head. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Just, just get, walk it off. Right. And, and there's, there's plenty of other, um, you know, parents, coaches and teammates that'll do that for you. But uh, I'm not talking about acute pain. Right. I'm not talking about these very definitive um, mechanisms of injury. I'm talking about pain that persists long after evidence of the tissue damage and tissue injury is gone. Um, and people who say, you know, I've tried surgery, I've tried physical therapy, I've tried opioids, none of it helps. Right. And so th- th- this is what more of what I'm talking about because, um, and kind of just putting, putting that back to athletes for a second. Uh, um, and you might be able to fact check me on this, but I think the general population is estimated to have around six to 8% of clinical depression. So about seven to 8% of the, the general population, we can fact check that later, but I think about 10 yeah. to 15 years ago, um, that's about the number we were at. 
Athletes I was looking for my DSM. Keep in, talking. I'm going to look it up. Yeah, perfect. Athletes have been shown to have uh, clinically uh, depressed symptoms up to six times greater or six, six times more frequent than the general population. Wow. And that's at baseline. That's no pain. Just being an athlete itself, right? Um, and so, so that's what I'm talking about is how when things manifest. And so now to, to kind of answer your question, um, uh yeah, you do have to be careful with the wording, and it does take practice because, it, like you said, the last thing you want to do is tell someone that it's all in your head. But you have to understand, too, that um, pain truly at its root is is an output of the brain. You're not making it up. The pain is real, but it is an output, okay? How many times mm-hmm. have you looked down in your leg and you saw a bruise or for providers or for athletes – uh, hey, what ha- what happened there? You know what? what like, I don't know. Why do you have this big bruise on your leg? Like, I don't know. I was like, does it hurt? Like, no, I don't know. But a bruise is indicative of tissue damage, right? A bruise is something happened. You got hit or you fell down, and something happened, but you didn't feel pain. Yeah. Is it because you didn't perceive that particular incident to be anything worth having pain over? Yeah. That's what that's what that's what your brain does, right? So it takes all this input, it takes this stimulus. You know, I, I punch I punch you in the shoulder, Jake, and and you've maybe you've been punched in the shoulder before, and you're like, yeah, that doesn't hurt. You can you can do better than that, right? Whereas mm-hmm. I I punch a a twenty year old kid who who has never played sports in his life, um, talented musician. I punch him in the shoulder, and he's like, what did you do that for? That hurt. Ow, yeah. <laughs> so. Um, you have to understand so again it comes down to understanding the person and understanding what really moves them drives them and motivates them and it doesn't happen in one session it just doesn't so one of my uh, I'll, I'll give you an example from this afternoon um my, my last patient of the day my final exercise for her was um and and people think pts oh you got to squat you got to stretch you got to do this i told her to go to the coffee shop she has a coffee shop she's been dying to go to. She's afraid to go because she's afraid she doesn't have the balance to navigate the parking lot to go get coffee. And so she's been staying at home for the last week because her, her knee gives out. And so I said, hey, what we're going to do today is we're going to take your, your house here. And that's one of the beauties of going to people's houses is I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to simulate a parking lot. I'm going to have you start with two minutes of just, hey can you describe this coffee shop to me? And and ironically enough, I've been to this coffee shop, so I knew it. And I had her close her eyes as I, I I did a little bit of hands-on work on her knee. And she described the parking lot. She described the coffee. She described the latte she wanted with her eyes closed. And I said, great, stand up. How does your knee feel? My knee feels a lot better. You want to know what I did to her knee? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) absolutely nothing. I had my hands on it. I had my hands on her knee, but I didn't do anything physiologically meaningful to her knee. So, and we know that is the placebo effect, right? Mm -hmm. But I had her describe a situation that she wanted to participate in. And this isn't going to work for everybody. It's not, but it worked for her. We, we got up, we moved around. She went up and down her stairs. She said, it feels great. Um, so I said, okay, between now and next week, here's what I need you to do. I don't care about how many squats you can do. I don't care about your hamstring flexibility. I said, hey, go to the coffee shop for me and send me a picture of the coffee that you get. That's yeah. your home exercise program. <laughs> um, now, the lead up to today was, yes, we had to do some squats. We had to get her comfortable. We had to be kind to her nervous system. We had to be kind to her body and understand that there was a pathology that required healing early on, but it's been two months and that, that injury is healed. So why is she still having pain? So that, that's an example of, of, um, you, you as a provider, I have to be able to understand you and what drives you so that I can tell you, I'm not going to sit there and bore you with how psychologically or psychosocially your fear right now is translating to your pain. Yeah, that's, I can no, tell that's you that my job. Day. That's my job. Right. I do that. <laughs> I'll send you to Jake. But yeah. um, I identified that early enough on that she was afraid to fall because she said that herself. So uh, I know that fear is driving it. I know it. But Because when but, she's in her home, she can balance on one leg with no problem. 
So, uh, by the way, do you remember what you said for the statistical uh, spread of depression? Yeah, how far off was I on that? You said 6 to 8% of the general population. It's 7 Great. Okay. Seven percent. Seven percent. So um, that so goes along with ninety-eight percent of all statistics are made up. Are made up. Yeah. Yeah. No. I <laughs> I looked in the DSM and that's a you know, it's ten-year-old stat, but I'm I'm sure it's still prevalent. But the um, but the idea is that you're you're working with these athletes who have a much higher in prevalence of depression. Yeah. Why is that? Is that because of the injury factors that go into just playing sports or what? So, so there, there's where you open up the, um, the, the rabbit hole, right? And that's a great, mm-hmm. that's a great question, great lead in because athletes, and if you've played high school or college sports, you can really identify with this. And in terms of, uh, you have a lot going on. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You wake up at five o'clock in the morning for weights, but you didn't go to bed until one o'clock in the morning because that was the only chance you had to study for the test that you missed last week because you were on a, on a road trip. Right. Um, right. It, you wake up at five for weights. You're in, you know, um, you, you're in the, you're in your classroom by seven, you're on the field by one. Um, what, whatever it is, you're practicing till five thirty six. Uh, you go home, meet dinner, study, and that builds. And, and we know that the lack of sleep, I mean, that's one of the, the greatest rehabilitation, <laughs> pieces of advice that that i could adhere to more and and so can my patients <laughs> yeah <laughs> um is is sleep because of its effect on our homeostasis right the, the ability mm-hmm. for all of our neurotransmitters all of our hormones to function in balance and when anything gets imbalanced anything i don't care whether it's a muscle a tendon or a bone that's imbalanced or 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 the what what's going on between the ears uh, it, it creates a discrepancy and it creates a disturbance in the body elsewhere, right? So that's the simplest way of putting it. But athletes, especially, you know, you, you sprain an ankle, and the first thing that goes through my mind when I'm playing center field is, "Oh crap! I'm on my t- I'm on this team because of my speed. That right. sprained ankle. That's that's not good, right? That's not good. Right. So immediately the catastrophization and the worry starts to set in. And okay, Johnny on the bench over there, he's been working his he's been working his tail off. If I sit one day, uh, he can go four for four, and I've lost my spot. I've lost my scholarship, and you can see how that quickly spirals. That's a lot of pressure. Um, but but it, it's also very interesting about the contextual cues and the context of the game, um, winning versus losing. Uh, things always just seem to not hurt when your team is ahead mm-hmm. or when you're about to score or when you're involved in a high-profile play here. Uh, yeah. Things just don't hurt anymore, do they? And, yeah, I, I agree because um, you know, I've, I've had some, some issues I, you know, I'll disclose later back pain whatnot knee pain and when i'm in the batter's box actually about to take a swing all that just disappears because i'm focused on yeah. the pitch um and, and i want to hit it you know and then when i get to first base uh they all come back because i'm standing still <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah you're right like there it has to do with with where we put our attention and if our attention is on something that at the moment is more valuable to us than the pain or the other whatever ailment it is and it could be this we could extrapolate this out from body stuff to life stuff right in a given moment we have certain priorities my priority in a given moment is to drive my car and it's rush hour and there's lots of traffic and i have to stay focused well there's not a lot of room in my my mind for anything else including the worry of work or the whether or not the the dinner's gonna be on the table when i get home it's like i'm paying attention to the traffic right so i can see how this would would absolutely play into you know like where's my pain in that moment well you chose differently whether or not you're conscious of that choice you are choosing yeah, exactly, and that and that's the that's the thing is that that all these all these interactions, all these variables um, at play. Your brain has it; it has an, a, a somewhat finite amount of resources. It, it 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 has these resources that it can divert to certain tasks. Right? We we know that as attentional focus. Um, but as soon as as soon as the the focus shifts to what can happen. Again, level of threat and level of uh, fear 
Right. And, and how that, how that drives our pain. So here's an interesting, again, I told, I told you that the, you know, I'm not going to bore the audience with, with boring studies. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about a couple here that are really kind of interesting. Um, just a, a, about 10 to 15 years ago, a physiotherapist out of Australia called uh, his name is Lorimer Mosley um, did a couple of studies and, and, and I'm going to preface this by saying, I, I don't know who signs up for this because um, I, I wouldn't, but <laughs> some, someone did a few, a bunch of people did. And um, basically what they did is, is they took um, a hot poker and, or a hot probe and it was extremely cold. It was at negative 20 degrees Celsius and they would place it on the hand of these participants for about half a second. At the exact same time this probe touched the participant's hand, they would show a color mm. and the color would be red or blue and that's all you would see. And you would rate your level of pain and they would do this multiple times with, with the, you know, they would randomize the colors. They would uh, randomize the time where they placed the probe on you, but it would all happen at the same time. And the pain would be anywhere between two out of 10 or eight out of 10, same temperature, same amount of time, different color. Two out of 10 was associated with blue because it's more of a calming and uh, just a cooler color. Eight out of 10 is associated with danger and warmth. Uh, and, and so more pain with that. Um, and then to, to take things a step further, the same, same PT a few years later, um, they, what they did is they took a hot poker or a a hot, um, rod and they would place it on these subjects leg. And, um, the scientists would, there'd be an audio overlay saying, Hey, this is what we're doing. It was just very, very systematic. Hey, this is what we're doing. We're placing a hot poker on your leg. It's very hot. Um, it's this many degrees. And do you feel that? Okay. And of course, sure enough, everybody said, yeah, that hurt <laughs> as yeah. we expected. But then they repeated the study with, um, with like a, a mistress or a dominatrix sounding voice. Okay. A different voice, no longer a scientist, this, this dominatrix saying it's a, it's a the same exact, number lady. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but the same script, I'm placing this poker on your leg. It's very hot. It's very hot. It's going on your leg. Now here's how many degrees it is. And the, the participants never rated that as painful as they did when the scientist said it. Wow. And, and this was consistent enough to have a, 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 a statistical significance and in terms of um, how we perceive a stimulus and then process it and then say, okay, it's painful or it's not painful. Um, and so athletes understanding contextual variables have a lot more, especially a collegiate athlete, right? Where you have academics to focus on too. Minor league baseball players um, have terrible, terrible living conditions. Um, They're away from home for the first time often. Uh, There's a lot of outside stressors that all of your sudden your brain is saying, okay, we've got to attend to all these other things going on. Um, Maybe we can attend to the pain, maybe not. But all of that is serving as a threat to our system. We start to worry. We start to become fearful. We have anxiety. We have stress. And that manifests into what we know as pain. So I'm thinking of this in terms of like a stacking effect too, where you can, you could become victim to your own pain response such that it wears out your brain by paying attention too much to the pain. In other words, in other words, we create like a, a feedback loop that says, I hurt, right. I hurt, I got to do something, but you need the brain power to focus on other things and it can wear you down because you're spending too much time worrying about your pain. Then you should be on cooking dinner, attending to your children or going to work or whatever it is. So, so therefore the next thing that happens is your pain perceives to get worse. And then maybe even we blame it for the reason that we're spiraling. How do we break that loop or like, what's the practical takeaway here? Exactly. So that that's the that's the whole key is is breaking the cycle, right? Um, uh, little Lincoln Park, uh, yeah. alluding to that right there. But um, that's the thing is you you have to understand and be able to take a step back and understand what is going on in your own life, and and that may start very simply with saying, are the is the environment that I'm in 
contributing to stress because I don't even want to, I don't even want to yep. talk about the word pain right now. I don't want to talk about your injury right now. Um, I want to talk about what what's going on in your life because again we know that stress and anxiety and fear and catastrophization all have this imbalancing effect on on the dopamine on the serotonin on the cortisol which we we know as your, your stress hormone okay. um, and increased levels of cortisol um, also come with it now cortisol can be a great hormone it does have anti-inflammatory effects, but when you have excessive levels of cortisol and for prolonged periods of time, it, it, it's almost like a bell curve. It's no longer anti-inflammatory. And, and in fact, it, it can be very um, uh, detrimental. And so you need to be able to identify your coaches and your parents and your teammates need to be able to identify, okay, maybe that living situation is not the greatest. Maybe you, your, your eating situation uh, your diet, your nutrition is not the greatest because it's these little steps towards, and again, you can set goals. You can say, okay, I want to be pain-free. I want to throw a baseball a hundred times a game again, but you've got to work back. You've got to keep working backwards, keep working backwards, keep working backwards into the most actionable item that you can take right now. Is that listening to music? Is that going to a concert? Is that doing band work? Is it doing squats? No, absolutely not. And, and oftentimes we've got to take a break from the physical um, uh, to, to get there. So we know, right, we, we know that an injury and, and the, the effect of pain not only can change the way that we move, okay, it just, it just does. It's, it's, it's inherent and that's a, um, an evolutionary um, feet is, is if we're in pain, we're going to change the way we move so that we don't mm -hmm. cause more tissue damage. Okay. But with that, we also get this lack of sometimes self-esteem, this lack of self-efficacy, the ability to overcome barriers, the, the ability to persevere through obstacles. And then, like you said, it becomes very cyclical. Is that, um, is that because you can no longer do the thing that you were doing? Yes. And you're doing so, it so you lose the identity with, right. with what it is. At some point, pain or injury, athletes and pain go hand in hand. They just do. If you play long enough, you're going you're gonna to get hurt. You're going to have pain. Yep. But it's how you process that pain and how you process the level of fear that surrounds it. And it's how you process all of the other aspects of your life that you're feeding into your brain to control and determine the output, which may be pain or it may be motivation. It depends on how you process it and how you, um, and, and how you react to it. So, uh, and that's not always something that an athlete is, is trained to do or, or be able to understand. But one of the great, the easiest things to do is find is surround yourself with the right individuals uh, who do understand that. Uh, and if the individuals that you're surrounded by are just saying tough it out or uh, no pain, no gain or whatever it is, you got to be able to recognize that that's feeding into the loop. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because sometimes what we surround ourselves with is just the straight toxicity of anonymous uh, posts on the internet. And if we're glued to our devices, doom scrolling Twitter or Facebook or uh, looking at just nonsense on TikTok that's not edifying, what what ends up happening is we get that that chemical imbalance in the brain. I'm really glad you said that that there's an an imbalance, right? Lay people say, oh, is it a chemical imbalance? And I go, yes, of course it is. But that's not what you think it means. What it means is you have an overabundance of, of brain chemicals that you yourself actually have control over. And you can surround yourself with positive, edifying, calming, peace-inducing stimuli because you're choosing to. Alternatively, you can also surround yourself with chaos and misery and reminders of how the world is going to hell in a handcart because you are diving into that and that will have an eroding effect on your physiology because you're taxing your body so much. Um, the, those chemicals have to be processed somehow through other organs in order for them to leave your body. And if you've over flooded your body with brain chemicals that are designed for a temporary purpose in a given moment, but now they're sustained at higher levels than should be, based on you know our development then what you end up with is sometimes 
a physiological erosion. So I, you know, anecdotally, I can tell you that I have yet to meet someone who suffers from migraine headaches who does not also have a ton of stress in their life. Usually that stress is in the form of anxiety and that anxiety takes the form of worry about lots of things, other people, relatives, diseases, uh, life circumstances, what have you. And as a result, they get the migraine headaches. I also can tell you that, again, anecdotally, just my experience, but I've got 12 years of it now, 100% of the people I've talked to with fibromyalgia, which is not yet understood by anyone, <laughs> uh, but we have drugs to treat it, uh, they have the same ailments. It's, it's a psychological overtaxing of the brain because they're overly concerned, they're hypervigilant, they're consumed with anxiety, they're consumed with stress. And once they learn to let that go, prioritize things in their lives, uh, li live in peace and tranquility and harmony, the physiological stuff just disappears. Uh, back aches, stomach pain, uh, gastrointestinal issues. I mentioned the migraines. You know, all these, these things that doctors, you know, medical doctors, primary care physicians can't put their finger on. Um, and yet seem, seemingly aren't bold enough to say, hey, maybe go seek some counseling. That seems to be the root. And so I say, yeah, it absolutely is a chemical imbalance, but do you need to ingest more chemicals to counterbalance those chemicals or can you maybe just make some behavioral adjustments? Uh, and I got to believe that all the stuff that you talked about with regard to college athletes, professional athletes, the stresses in their lives, especially today, these days, kids these days are so consumed with device presentation and stimulus on the, the handheld stuff that that just adds to it. You know, it's not, as if it's not bad enough with your homework and your romantic relationships and your peer relationships and trying to squeeze in meals and workouts and workout routines and training and watching film and studying playbooks. Now you're going to go on Twitter and like find out that people are just talking trash behind an anonymous account. Like get that crap off out of your psyche. Like you don't need that. That's, that's deleterious to your progress. It's too easy to compare. That's, and that's, mm, that's kind of the root is. of some of the problems is too easy that's to so compare. good. That's um, so good. Yeah, you're right. And no, I mean, that, that was all, that was all phenomenal. And, and it's, it's interesting because, um, so, so fun, fun little fact here, um, in Japan, there's a, a net, the high baseball is taken very, very, very seriously in Japan, far more mm. seriously than it is in, in the United States. And, um, uh, th there's pros and cons of that, but in, in a 2021 December of 2021 study, they actually looked at um, what happened during COVID and high school baseball players in Japan. I mean, it's phenomenal. Um, what they found is that of hundreds and hundreds of Japanese citizens who were surveyed, uh, about 50, I'm sorry, about 70 to 75%, more than three quarters of them supported the shutdown of all professional sports. This was in 2020 when COVID first hit. Three quarters of the population that was surveyed uh, supported the shutdown of sports. Yet, over half of the participants did not support the shutdown of the high school baseball playoffs. Fascinating. What does that do to a kid, and especially in a, in a, in a system, in a baseball system, where there's much more of a hierarchy and a much more um, uh, regimented uh, and kind of status involved with being a, a freshman, sophomore, junior, or senior, that, that, that's huge. Um, and, and another study that came out of Japan, you know, looked at how much more likely someone was to feel pain in multiple areas as soon as they felt pain in one area. Hmm. Right. And so it's, you know, you start to look at these and you, it's, you can't say cause and effect, but you can certainly establish a correlation to this, hmm. um, that, you know, again, you you got to understand the brain does not know the difference between good and bad. It doesn't. It learns what is repeated. Right. Whether helpful or unhelpful, the thoughts, the actions, and the habits, the brain learns. That is what is called, you know, neuroplasticity. Yeah. Well, it's and behaviorism so, too. Yeah. And so if you, if you are in a position where you continue to drive – stressful and anxious and fearful actions, thoughts, and habits that is going to manifest in what you alluded to the, or what you talked about, the chemical and the hormonal imbalance that are in fact in charge of pain. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, 
and and we'll 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 kind of I just want to go into a really really quick anecdote. I mean, I'm so I'm 32 years old. Uh, last year I had a broken toe, and that broken toe set me down for about six months. And anybody mm. anybody looks at that. Uh, a broken toe, my fifth toe, not even my big toe, right? Just the, the most <laughs> insignificant toe set me down for, I want to say about five months. And, um, you know, as I, as I reflect on this a year later, um, it, it quickly became an issue of not the broken toe itself. I, you know, I went into an orthopedic uh, a surgeon and, and we took x-rays and yeah, you could see the break there, whatever. Mm-hmm. wasn't that bad, if, all things considered. Um, but it was excruciatingly painful. I couldn't walk. I couldn't put weight on it. Couldn't wiggle my toes without just agonizing pain. Uh, three months later, it would it would blow up like a red balloon when I sat near a fireplace. And I said, well, this is not what a broken toe is supposed to do. Three months later, my foot would get beat red. And so I went back to him and we took new x-rays. And he said, yeah, I mean, there's signs of healing. I mean, it's not perfect, but there's there's healing. Um, it shouldn't be hurting you like that. And so we were a couple weeks away from getting me uh, set up for uh, putting pins in my in my toe and stabilizing the joint. And he, he took a look at me and he said, Chris, uh, to, to be honest, I think the worst thing you can do right now is put a pin in your toe. If, if you can't handle a fireplace, you're not, your body's not going to handle a pin. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it was um, a blunt truth. And he said, I, I want you to go walk on the beach. And I said, I, I just want you to get out into, cause he knows I love nature. He knows I love the outdoors. Um, and that was, and, and we, we, we've known each other for quite a while. So he said, I want you to, to, this weekend, drive out to the Washington coast and go walk on some sand. And so, um, I did that and reluctantly, and and it felt great. And guess what? I overdid it. Um, Mm. I had the agonizing pain again, um, the next day (laughs) and here we go. We reset. But what we quickly realized is, is, um, it felt good in the meantime. I just did too much. So, uh, my, my, my girlfriend at the time, my fiance at the time, she, um, we actually started introducing, Instead of me just working on balance and working on strength and working on flexibility and putting myself in a walking boot, we would take different items. We would take a cotton ball, we'd take sandpaper, we would take a sheet, and we would take uh, a Kleenex, uh, a little pencil, and I would close my eyes and I would listen to music to distract me. And she would take that stimulus or that item and rub it over my left toe and say, hey, Chris, this is, this is what that's supposed to feel, brain. Feel this tissue, feel this toothpick, feel this sandpaper. And of course, my left foot is fine. And my brain says, yeah, that feels like it should. And she would move over to the right leg and she would do the same thing. She'd poke it with a toothpick. She'd poke it with sandpaper. She'd rub it with a cotton ball. And she'd look up at me very reluctantly and very skeptically. And I would look back and say, yeah, feels fine. Um, and we would do this and, and we would really treat the nervous system. We would down regulate, we would desensitize make my nervous system and make my nerves, make my foot, make my brain less sensitive to the incoming stimulus. Mm -hmm. And over the course of just a couple of weeks, I went from, I can't wiggle my toes and sit in front of a fireplace to I can walk. I can go back on the beach. And we did a week later. No problem. That's what cured me. It wasn't physical therapy. It was sandpaper, toothpicks and cotton balls. Resetting the nervous system, resetting exactly. your brain. It was a hard reset. And I, I, to this day, you know, I just did a four-mile run yesterday, um, which, fun fact, a six-mile run is equivalent. It releases enough um, uh, endorphins in the body uh, equivalent to about 10 milligrams of morphine. Hmm. Okay, so about an hour of sustained aerobic exercise for those of us that don't like to run. Um, and, and to put that into perspective, when <laughs> exactly. And, and to put that into perspective, when you go to the emergency room uh, for, for maintenance of acute pain, they, they may only give you about half that dosage of morphine. And so just a 60 minute sustained run um, will, will release enough endorphins, enough uh, uh, analgesic effect in the body. So, so that's a, a, just a fun fact. Side note. Um, but yeah, we, we reset the nervous system and I went back out and I did things that I loved because I'd been avoiding them for five months. Um, and I have no issue to the day and I don't have a pin in my toe. So, so what, what do you say to people who do have, uh, chronic pain and they do have a reason, you know, uh, nerve rubbing against a disc or something, uh, surgery is not an option for whatever reason. Um, they don't want to take medicine 
uh, because they don't want any of that effects or to tempt it. How how can we how can we advise those folks? Again, I know this is asking for a generic answer to specific yeah, yeah, things, yeah. but but like what what can you do when when we we know that the mind has such great control uh, over physiological ailments, um, and yet there's still structural deficiencies? Like how how do we yeah. get through that? Great question. So. Um, there, there's a, there's a two part answer to this and I'm, I'm going to, I'll circle back around to it here real quick. But, um, the, the first thing, the first and foremost thing is, is, um, and it kind of relates back to, um, the scans and the imaging. And we put all these people through MRIs and x-rays to see all these people without pain to, uh, I should preface. That's the yeah. most important thing. People without pain or symptoms have signed up to just be placed through an MRI and, uh, again, for just the 40-year-old age group, or even say the 30-year-old age group, just less than half of them are going to have degenerative disc disease. Um, half the people, by, by middle age, half half the people are going to be walking around with a rotator cuff tear, and they have no idea about it, okay? Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not going to try to convince you right off the bat that you're one of the two that has a rotator cuff tear, and we just don't need to do anything about it. Um, but understanding, again, I think I think you kind of, play into um, getting them to understand that if they can enjoy their life and they can, they can move, they're going to be all right. Um, And and again, that starts with very simple. That's, those are the roots and elements of physical therapy is okay. You may have a rotator cuff tear. Um, You may not be appropriate for surgery, um, but I may just take you on day one and I may just gently lift your arm off the table and we sit and talk, or maybe I have you do some, maybe not leg exercises, but I'm going to get you to move your arm in a way that is not perceived as threatening to your brain. I'm going to give okay. you support, which means I'm going to make mm-hmm. you use your left hand to help the right one up. I'm going to make you, um, you're going to move that arm and you're going to start to see, oh, huh, I can move it. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Move it some more. Et cetera, et cetera. Now, there, of course, there's going to be times there's going to be structural barriers, like you said, that it's just not going to it's not going to affect them. Yeah, can't move um, that way. It hurts, but I can move other ways. Right. The, the goal is to kind of disguise movement and disguise um, feeding into their neurological system. And, and again, a lot of people think that all we do is massage. Well, <laughs> no, but if that is really what you need um, to to feel better. Even if physiologically I know that's just not going to have any effect on your rotator cuff tear, uh, sure, I'll do it because in that moment, it's going to let you move a little bit better and a little bit less fearfully. And it, like I said, it's the, the brain learns repeated movements and it remembers how you feel. Um, and now, if someone truly has a structural issue and they can't have surgery, you know, to be honest with you, you do the best you can, but that, that's rare. Um, the last study I'm going to cite right now because this is <laughs> – this is interesting. Um, uh, what they did is they took two groups. They both had the same problems. They had a degenerate or they had a disc that was protruding on a nerve root. It's the same same example that you you just gave me. Um, I jumped ahead in the PowerPoint. What's that? Oh yeah, I said I jumped ahead in the PowerPoint. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Um, they took two groups. They all had low back pain or weakness or radiating pain down their leg. Uh, what we know as sciatica or a bulge disc. Um, and half, they, they all went through the same procedure. It's called a microdisectomy. Um, it's a, it's a minimally invasive procedure where they'll go in, they'll, they'll either kind of remove a fragment of the disc or they'll shave just a little bit of the bone to give the nerve more room to breathe, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. but in this instance, to keep everything the same, they went in, they did this microdisectomy on every single person and they removed a small disc fragment that was pushing on the nerve and they saw it on this, these MRI scans. Okay. So everybody had the same relative symptoms, same relative age group, same procedure, and half of them received the disc material that was extruded in a little tiny test tube, and the other half didn't. And they basically said, here's your little disc in a, in a glass test tube. Here you go. Off you go. All right. We'll see you back in six months. Um, and the other half didn't receive it. And when they did their six-month follow-up, the group that received their disc material in a test tube, reported lower pain postoperatively, greater strength, fewer 
numbness, tingling, and radiating pain, just overall better outcomes than the group that didn't. Hmm. So do I throw the study in front of a patient's face? No, not necessarily. But I find a way to just kind of, you, you remind them that a lot of these MRI and x-ray findings, bulge disc, torn rotator cuff, knee arthritis, they are what's called normal abnormalities, right? right. We, we all have them. Most of the population lives with them without pain. And so my, my challenge to you is if nothing else has worked, let's try a different road here. Okay. And so I usually get buy-in with that and it's, it's skeptical, but that's where you've got to understand the person and what moves them or else you have no chance for success. Do you read any, uh, uh, John Sarno or, um, or, uh, William Glasser? No, I can't, I can't say, I I know uh, the names, but I, I don't. Yeah, they they talk they talk about uh, mind body stuff and, and basically that like my my own physical therapist has even said it's like you you know you want to see the films he's like no <laughs> Are you sure no yeah. <laughs> why it doesn't matter oh right what and 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 I realized thankfully you know doing the work that I do I was like oh this is confirmation bias yeah when I lay eyeballs on something that you know, it's a picture of some place on my body that hurts and I go, Oh yeah, see, see, there it is. That's why. Ow. <laughs> but what if I don't, and I just trust that treating the, now this is not to be confused with symptom treatment versus problem resolution, but if you treat the symptom presentation, mm-hmm. then it doesn't matter the origin. If it eliminates your problems, you get more motion, right. you, you, you have less pain, you, you know, you go about your daily life. It doesn't matter what the problem was. Um, you can call it whatever you want. You can give it a diagnosis or a label or whatever. But uh, the point is, you're better now and sustain that habit. You know, sustain right. that path. And I, I thought Ex- that was so exactly. cool. Can, can you move? Great. Can you do what you want to do or not? And and then of course the follow up question that everybody gives is, well, if the MRI shows this, just because I'm feeling well right now, what about in five years? And I said, well, right. let's let's address let's it in five deal years. with it in five years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, nobody's expected to, to go to their, their, uh, their grave with a perfect body. You're just, you're not live very well if that happens. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a topic that, that, I mean, we, we could delve so much even, even deeper into it, but, um, it's, it's, it's amazing when you actually take the time to understand the, the person behind the symptoms yeah. Um, and everybody says it, but nobody really knows how to do it or what to do with the information uh, once it, once it's presented. And I think that's that's where the disconnect lies um, in, in terms of we always want to fix things. I, I mean, the first thing I want to do is, I, yes, I want to get your your rotator cuff tear better, um, but but let's let's set the expectation right now that if you feel better in four weeks, I don't care what the scan looks like. Right. Right. It just doesn't matter. Because yeah. we could probably scan your left one, and it looks the same, but you have no problems, right? So it doesn't matter. You, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we do the same thing in the Y world, too. You know, the parents walk in, and it's like, I think he has ADHD. It's like, who cares if he does? Like, what does that label do for you? It gives you something to hold on to. It gives you something tangible. Tangible, Tangibility. Yeah. Tangibility gives us a sense of certainty. But you still are left with the now what? You want to you want to fix something. You want to fix his fidgetiness in the classroom or his inattention to his homework or the fact that he quit can't quit blurting out in the middle of the movie theater. Okay, who cares why? Who cares what the 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 label is? Let's just solve it. And it sounds like you guys take the same approach, and I really appreciate that. And I think too, you know, we talk a lot about individualized treatments and getting to know your the person behind the symptom presentation, behind the outward behavioral presentation, and that's. It just takes effort and time, and I think, frankly, not a lot of us are really interested in that. We're interested in talking about it, about how we do it, but it takes time to get to know somebody so well that you can predict things and make general assumptions about their their habits and their lives. You know, it's it, it's exhausting work if you let it be, or you can be driven by your curiosity, which again is a mental focus. You know, do you want to be? You want to be exhausted? That's fine. You can you can be exhausted, or you can flip another switch and go. No, I'm just going to continue to be curious, and I'm going to let this fire burn within me that allows me to keep digging deeper and deeper, so that I can be a better clinician to this person who needs me at this moment. And I think that's that's just the short answer. It's like you know, well, 
why why don't why don't we take more time to understand our patients because it takes hard work and we're just, <laughs> like we're just lazy i don't know yeah or or again we're, we're burdened by a system that doesn't allow us to it doesn't but, allow it to. right um, correct yeah 16 patients a day and you know like instead of five like that's a it's a huge difference you can spend more time you can be more effective yeah, well, but I, no, good stuff. And and yeah, just kind of drive it all home then, you know, it, b- baseball players and, and athletes. Um, um, a, a scout once told me that a successful high school player makes adjustments from week to week. A successful college player makes adjustments day to day. A successful minor leaguer makes adjustments from at bat to at bat. And a successful major leaguer makes adjustments pitch to pitch. Hmm. And because here's the thing, consistency is really the key. It's the habit, right? And And a lot of players are really talented, but they don't have the ability to make those adjustments. And those adjustments may be physical, but they started with a mental. They started with your, you felt your swing be off, you analyzed that, and right. you changed the input, which then changed the output. And um, as counterintuitive as it may seem, acknowledging failure and acknowledging setback, especially in a game that rewards who can fail the least, um, can really alleviate pressure and stress. Because when we become focused on the result or the consequence, the base hit, the RBI, the strikeout, we ignore the process. Yep. And the process is is really um, where it's at, especially if you're injured. It's the process, not the result. We, You know you want to be out of pain, but the process of this day-to-day, how can I be kind to my nervous system, um, whether it's with sandpaper and a cotton ball or with treating myself to ice cream in a movie, uh, not not to you know, you don't want that to be cyclical, but uh, <laughs> again, what releases dopamine, what releases and, and serotonin, what elevates that, um, what releases cortisol? Well, it's being around my family. Well, yeah. that is contributing to your stress, you know, all, all these things. And so those are the first steps into getting out of this cycle so that you start to feel a little bit better and you start to be a little more confident and a little more comfortable and let go a little bit. So that's know, a great point about the process. If you, if you engage in the process and you trust the process, you don't look at the measurements. That's your job. That's my job, right? We, yeah. we, we measure things, but, but at the end, you, you, you know, at some point, I won't even say the end at some point you turn around and you go, wow, I've come a long way. Ooh, I should keep sustaining it. And you're mm-hmm. back in the process again, right? You pop your head up just long enough to look around and measure. Um, but you're not, you're not setting your sights on the outcome. I love the way that you said that because that's so true and it's so applicable to so many different life presentations from work to family to exercise to diet to career to, um, you know, hobbies. Like just start doing it and then make adjustments as you go. And then before you know it, you turn around and you got five years worth of podcasts. (laughs) I didn't set out to make five years worth of podcasts. If I would, I I would have been very frustrated very quickly because time goes very slowly. Sometimes it goes rapidly, but, um, you know, I just, I just enjoyed doing it. That's part of the process. I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy learning and hopefully somewhere out there, people are listening to this going, Oh, that was neat. You know, and then they share it and somebody benefits. I don't know. I'm never going to have the measurement of that. But if I set out thinking, you know, I need to do this thing, well, it's going to ruin the experience anyway. So I appreciate you mentioning that. That's that's yeah. a really good takeaway, I think. So um, how do people find you if they want to? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, that's a great question, too. Uh, so I, I my, my physical therapy practice is called Switchback Physical Therapy. Um, and, and, you know, it's metaphorical for the, the switchbacks you get on a mountain. It's not always easy at times, but you turn corners. I see one over your right top. shoulder there. Yeah. There you go. Um, <laughs> there's no yeah. on the wall there. Oh, you, the, 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 there you go. There's a switchback, yes. Yeah, so I, I actually have my <laughs> office decked out in, in uh, photographs that I've taken um, to kind of remind myself what, you know, where, where my roots are and, and not to get too caught up in the work aspect of things. Um, but uh, switchbackpt.com is is my website. Um, I'm going to be honest, I'm not very... Uh, active on social media, um, but um, but yeah, you do I, have I, a I serve. What's that? You have a photo account though, right? Or do you still maintain I do. that? Yeah, so I I, I have a, ph- a photography business as well, and um, you know my my love and joy is with the the landscapes of the Pacific Northwest and travel. I've I've been to um, all but one continent, two continents at this point. Um, but um, so I, I still love photography, and uh, that that's an easy way to find me too, and and, and reach out. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I travel uh, throughout the east side of Seattle and south Seattle area, um, uh, working with athletes, uh, working with 
uh, post-op working with 70 year olds. It doesn't matter. My youngest right now is 12 and my oldest is 73. So, um, uh, when you start to realize that the body is in the mind or there's a consistency throughout, um, you can get people better. And, uh, but, but yeah, so I'm, I'm on Instagram. Uh, I think it's Chris Gehring photo and, um, switchback PT. So yeah, you do take some good there. photos. I, I appreciate I'm, that. That's that's one thing I would really like to get into at some point in my life that I just haven't taken the time to explore and purchase the equipment. Oh, the lenses. Oh, the lenses. Oh, uh, I know. <laughs> but, oh, I know. Uh, yours are enjoyable, so I'm just going to live vicariously through you for now. <laughs> well, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate you taking the time to to do this. Um, you know, uh, if you're listening, give us a rating and review. That helps people uh, find us, or so they tell me. And uh, on behalf of our Noggin Notes family and our Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye.